Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You are now listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things that will encourage us to live with a bend toward the remarkable. This episode speaks to those rogues who find interests in a variety of places. From creative projects like published novels and plays to being an executive in an organization, this guest does it all. Keep listening, my friends. I'm Leslie Eiler Thompson, host and curator of this podcast series. Today's guest was raised by a pastor who loved to tell stories. As a result, his children have grown to do the same. Pete Peterson spent early adolescence as an air traffic controller in the Marine Corps, which set in motion his ability to manage and direct many things at once. Pete, whose pen name is A.S. Peterson, is not only a successful author and playwright, but he sits as executive director of The Rabbit Room, an organization he founded with his brother, singer-songwriter and fellow author Andrew Peterson. The Rabbit Room has grown from a blog to a publishing house and will host its 10th conference in Nashville this fall, called Hutchmoot. We'll explain what this word means later on in the episode. Pete is the quintessential rogue that this series aims to humanize. He's got many fires burning and all of them are good, meaningful, and successful. However, he is able to point to failures, unforeseen opportunities, and insecurities that have ultimately made his story more remarkable. This episode is for the rogue ones that are struggling with being pigeonholed, for those who don't think their many interests can ever be equally as valid, and for anyone looking to produce work with purpose. When we sat down to talk, we covered many topics that were slightly off subject, including a large conversation about Lord of the Rings, more about how his pen name came to be, how he's procured J.R.R. Tolkien's actual fireplace mantle, and his next project, a theatrical adaptation of Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. We talk extensively about his research process for the play, including his trip to Amsterdam. This Rogue Rabbit Trails episode exists anywhere you listen to podcasts or at rogueonespodcast.com. And now, I have the pleasure of introducing to you A.S. Pete Peterson. You were f- you were from where? You're Florida, right? Yep, I grew up in South Georgia, Florida. Mm, the the <laughs> so, Florida Georgia line, if you will. Yeah, I have to. You have to make that distinction because when you say Florida, most people think palm trees and beaches. Mm-hmm. And where I'm from, it is all four wheel drives and beer cans. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, not the good Florida. Your entire family is very literary, right? Uh, Did you grow up that way or was that developed in your... Yeah, I guess so. Dad was a preacher. So Mm. I often, you know, just 
I wonder if part of the reason that we turned out the way we did is that we grew up every Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday evening, <laughs> grew up listening to our dad talk about scripture mm-hmm. and tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, you know, especially when I was a kid, I wasn't interested at all in hearing preaching. But, you know, as soon as a preacher starts telling a, a, a story that we can apply, I was like, oh, this is actually interesting. Mm. And so dad, I think, was really good at that. He was good at keeping people's attention by telling stories. And um, I I think I must have picked some of that up. Yeah. Sure. But there were always books around, too, because, you know, dad's always got a pile of books that he's reading from on his you know, uh, bedside table or the mm. desk table or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he read Narnia to us when we were kids and that mm. kind of thing. So we grew up with books. Yeah. And so what is the, because at one point you were a Marine, right? Yeah, at one point. Um, how long was that point <laughs> and how did that come to be? Oh, man. I was such a terrible child. Uh, <laughs> I really was. And the, when I turned 19 or I was 19, the the recruiters would call me like on a weekly basis and say, hey, we just wanted to talk to you about maybe, you know, signing up to serve your country. And I had at the moment a huge mullet <laughs> and I would uh, I would just be like, nobody's going to get me to cut my hair. Go away. Bye. And, <laughs> them. and like I just loved being rude to them. Oh, and good. so then when I was 19, uh, the first Gulf War broke out and, you know, we're sitting in our living room and watching Iraq and Kuwait mm-hmm. and all this, you know, be bombed. And, uh, you know, the U.S. is at war. And I was immediately like, that sounds like fun. Really? I mean, this is a 19-year-old sure. idi- idiot's brain, right? Not a mature thinking brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I immediately knew I wanted to join because I thought, if there are going to be war stories to be told, I want to be the one to tell them. And so then I thought, well, if I'm going to join the military, which branch will it be? And my brain immediately said, well, whichever one is the most difficult. And so I joined the Marines that day and came home and told my parents. I was like, I just joined the Marine Corps. And they were like, I thought you weren't getting your mullet cut. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, you know. So did you cut your mullet that day or when did the, no, when I, did the day come? I kept it till I went to boot camp. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it wasn't, it wasn't out of a desire to. Not at all. Yeah. It was out of pure stupidity. Um, do you, was it? A, do you think it was a good? <laughs> well, here's the thing. You're probably too young to remember the Gulf War, but uh, it was over in 30 days. It was well over before I was ever out of boot camp. <gasps> so by the time we're out of boot camp, we're like, "What have I done?" Oh no! <laughs> so I had six years of service in peacetime, essentially. But like in retrospect, thank God, right? Yeah, like right. I didn't have to go do any of that awful stuff that other people have had to. I was an air traffic controller, and I was on ship for a lot of my service uh, during the Yugoslavian civil war and we controlled aircraft and stuff. So, you know, I, I did some service, but it wasn't dangerous, but it was six years. And, and by the time it was all over, I just couldn't wait to get out. I'd kind of like learned in that six years who I was and maybe more importantly, who I wasn't, Sure. you know, and I definitely wasn't a Marine. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been very, I don't know if performance driven is the way to say it, but like, I like to do things myself and like make my own way. And uh, that is not something you can do in the Marine Corps right. or the military period, I think. You, you kind of like are always going to be judged by a very equal set of standards that is easily achievable by almost anyone. And therefore, you are almost never, as an enlisted person, going to excel beyond your peers mm. as far as uh, what you're paid and what responsibilities you have. I'm not here to talk bad about the military because I'm very grateful and proud of my service. Mm-hmm. But um, there is a sense in which after four years, most of my friends who are like me 
got out and went on to college and to okay. pursue their dreams. And I was stuck in for another two years. So did you write during that time? When did you start? I did I, on and off, nothing really serious. Um, I've always written. I mean, in grade school, I wrote short stories and, mm-hmm. you know, my teachers would enter them in contests and things. And I, I don't know if it ever won, but I, I kind of didn't care. I, just, I wrote It'd stories. Be funny if somewhere out there, like there's a collected early works of, <laughs> oh of A.S. Peterson oh, and it's like his, no, it's no. it's all these award-winning things that yeah. someone collected over it's the years. It's probably in a scrapbook of my mom's. So I need to find it and burn it. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was always kind of there, like in the back of my mind. I kind of thought I always wanted to be an author, but more than that, I thought I wanted to make movies initially. Mm. And that was reinforced during my time in the Marine Corps. I really loved film. Uh, as children, my brother and I made movies at home. Mm-hmm. In the days before DVD special added features or whatever, yeah. uh, we were glued to the TV anytime they were doing behind-the-scenes stuff. Because yeah. that, that kind of thing was really rare back then, and I was always fascinated by behind-the-scenes. So I thought I wanted to make movies. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to school um, and studied film for a couple of years. Okay. One thing led to another, and I decided I didn't want to make movies. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it was just right. kind of One about, of like, things. I realized that, like, what I wanted, what I liked was the creative aspect of it. I wanted to be able to tell stories. And what I didn't like about it was uh, having to collaborate with so many people because film is such a collaborative art. And, like, I perceived that if I really wanted to do that long-term and be able to make the films that I wanted to make, it was a long, long, long way off Mm. from me having the real freedom to be able to do that in the way that I wanted to. And I'm not really much of a people person. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just thought, yeah, that's probably not for me. Right. So I kind of, you know, got into some other things, which led to me being back in Florida after a few years, working at a group home for at-risk teenagers, teenage boys. And I did that for seven years. Which was a huge learning experience. I mean, my military experience kind of fed into that, you know, because I was able to be in charge of unruly people. <laughs> what was your role there at the home? I was uh, what they call a youth care specialist. Um, but what that actually means is they would kind of have, like there would be a group home of 10 teenagers uh, that would be run by a set of cottage parents. Okay. And then every eight days, they would take four days off. The cottage parents. The cottage parents. Okay. And so during that four days, I was the parent in the house. Oh, my. And then because the, the whole facility had eight of these cottages, I would just move from one cottage to another, filling oh. in when parents had time off. Oh, my. So I, was kind of, I mean, it's kind of like a glorified babysitter in some ways. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's, it's really high stress, long hours. Mm. I mean, you're working with kids who have never had structure, mm. who have, you know, authority issues. and You didn't run it like a Marine Corps drill sergeant or anything? A lot of the boys that I worked with would probably say that I did. Okay. <laughs> to my detriment, I think, looking back, I was a little hard to work with probably because I was fresh out of the Marine Corps. But it also helped me, you know, mm-hmm. it helped me know how to deal with running an organization of people that had to, you know, maintain order. And timeline, how old are you at this point when you're at the... I would have been 28 to 35 or so. And I'm guessing you were writing through all of that as well. That's when I really started writing in earnest, I think. I mean, I did little things here and there, but I think it was maybe like 2000, 2001. I remember Andrew and I were sitting on the porch one Christmas at my mom and dad's house and we had talked all our lives about, you know, the books we were one day going to write. Mm. And we kind of were just like, you know what? This is the year. Let's write a book. Let's see who can do it first. <laughs> like whoever writes a book first wins. Huh. And that was like the motivation that I really needed because, you know, like, you know, 
I'm not going to let my little brother outdo me. Yeah, right? sure. Right. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we went home after that Christmas and we both started writing our first books. I finished first, uh, but he got his, his published first. Oh, so it's kind of a tie. <laughs> so what counts? <laughs> <laughs> what was that first book? What was the topic? What is the, that was, uh, the Fiddler's Gun. Okay. Yeah. Which is a historical adventure set during the American revolution about a young girl who becomes a pirate. Where'd you come up with, where did that That's a great question. <laughs> like, I think, I was thinking at the time a lot about the kind of stories that last, what makes them that way. And when I say that, I mean like Treasure Island and sure. Dickens and The Count of Monte Cristo and like these, these stories that we feel like have been around forever and we all love them and uh, will we'll always be here for us. So when did the switch to playwright, play, playwriting <clears throat> happen? Um, man, that's a... So it's a, it's a really bizarre story. Love bizarre stories. Yeah. Well, I didn't plan it. Like I never had any intention of becoming a playwright, uh, but I published my first two books and then I wrote several short stories and I've been writing essays and things here and there. But like I said, I had studied film in school, which means, you know, I was familiar with the film, the screenwriting format and all that. Uh, and so uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine here in town, who's a director at uh, local uh, theater company approached me and just said, hey, we've got this um, idea. We want to develop this uh, original version of a fairy tale, Cinderella, actually. Uh, he said, would you be interested in writing an original treatment, an original musical of Cinderella? And I was like, heck yeah, I would do that. Uh, and he, he asked me because he had read you know, my books and you know trusted my facility with language, I guess, and uh, my sense of storytelling and just thought he'd throw it out there and see what happened. And I said, yes. And so I spent the next year or so working on a musical of Cinderella, and okay. which was really challenging for me because I don't like the story of Cinderella. Yeah. Like, I think it says a lot. I think it tells us a lot of lies about ourselves. Ooh, examples? Uh, well, I think it tells us that the, the most important thing is to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are the pretty one, the prince will come and rescue you from your poverty. Right. Which is mm -hmm. uh, a absolute lie. <laughs> you know, I just don't believe that at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to find a way to tell that story such that it said, had something truer to say, which was a lot of fun. The final draft that we sat down to do a reading of, a table read of, was 180 pages long. <laughs> and I noticed the other day that the, the first act of that play was longer than the entirety of my other two plays that have actually oh, been no. produced. Oh, no. So like, obviously it still needed some work. Um, so that was never produced. Uh, I think the material was really good. Like I said, it was just, it was my first experiment with the form of theater. And so, you know, there was just a lot wrong with it. But mm. what it did do was it demonstrated, I think, to the guy who asked me to do it, that I could. Mm. Um, and so a couple of years later, when they decided that they wanted to, to uh, develop an, an original play based on the Battle of Franklin mm. here in Tennessee, he asked me if I would be interested in tackling that. And again, I said, heck yes. Yeah. And uh, we took that all the way through. We workshopped it and uh, we ran, did two runs of it mm. um, uh, in, I guess, what was it? 2016, 2017. And that was your second, uh, that was your second play. That was the second one and, I had written, right. And uh, mm -hmm. the first one that was produced. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge success. I think it was the first time they ever sold every seat for a show. Really? Which was um, really satisfying. That is really satisfying. Yeah. So then um, they approached me for the 200th anniversary of the publication ah. of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. They were interested in doing a new adaptation of the book. And would I be interested in adapting it? Mm. And I love that book. So I said, yeah. heck yes, and jumped on that. And that was a huge success as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really was. Yeah. Okay, so now 
Rabbit Room. What is Rabbit okay. Room and and how did it come to be? Well, the Rabbit Room as it exists today is a nonprofit organization who fosters Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. Another way that we say that sometimes is we believe that art nourishes community and community nourishes art. Where it came from is that, I guess it was in 2006, my brother Andrew was in uh, England and he visited the Eagle and Child pub where the Inklings used to hold their weekly book group. And explain uh, who and the, the Inklings, Inklings are. are uh, it's more than just your average book group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's a, a J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, um, and several other uh, literary and academic luminaries of the day. Just some indie guys yeah, getting together yeah. to work on some... But like at the time, that's literally who it was. Mm-hmm. It was just some indie guys getting together because they were friends and hanging out and just having fun reading stories and trying to encourage one another in, in the writing that they were doing and you know drinking beer. Yeah. There was a sign hanging above the doorway that said, Rabbit Room. Huh. And that was the room in which they met. Okay. And Andrew asked the bartender, he said, hey, what, what, what does Rabbit Room mean? And the bartender said, oh, I think like 400 years ago, they used to keep rabbits in there. You know, because of that community, we have today the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia and, you know, Charles Williams books and a whole wealth of other things. And so Andrew came back from England all fired up about that idea that uh, that there's more to the creative life than just creating, that there are relationships and friendships that uh, provide the fertile ground for all of that stuff. He just started thinking about like, how can we recreate that here? And the initial idea was we're going to open the Rabbit Room Coffee Tavern and Bookstore. Oh. Uh, and it would be this place where you just come and like sit in a leather chair beside a fire and there'd be books everywhere and great coffee and, you know, maybe beer or whatever. And it would just be a great place where people could come and enjoy literary company. Mm-hmm. And we pretty re- quickly realized that that required way more money than we had. <laughs> So we opened a blog. Yeah. <laughs> and Brilliant. So uh, rabbitroom.com was formed. Mm. But anyway. And yeah, what year was that? That was 2007. And it was initially just a blog, a group blog, in which Andrew invited pastors, artists, uh, writers, authors, musicians, um, anybody else that we thought had an interesting voice, uh, just to come and kind of write together and be friends and play mm. and have fun and see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And we did, and it was a lot of fun, and I've got friends today that I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it generated, I think, this situation in which, you know, Russ Ramsey or Andrew Peterson or um, Ron Block would put, put up a post on the rabbit room, and it'd be like, ooh, that was really good. I've got to, I've got to beat him. Like, what can I post t- next week that would, <laughs> that would uh, get more likes than that? Uh-huh. You know, and not just because of likes, but because, like, we were – uh, sharpening one another. Right, you know, it was like, right. oh, I see what he did there. That was a really well-written post. I need to up my game. Well, probably in the same way that the rabbit room, the proper yeah. rabbit room where they all met together. I Absolutely. wonder how many times they shared their manuscripts or their ideas and the next person. Right. Thought, oh, I need to have something that's that sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I think mm. it's exactly that way. Um, and it was just a ton of fun. And, you know, after a few years, you know, it developed a, a really rich community of readers Mm. Uh, who would, uh, you know, have conversations in the comments and we were a big part of those conversations and it was always like really interesting ideas being batted around and it was just a really healthy thing, I think. And, and eventually that grew to the point where the readership was saying, you guys should have a conference. Like, you know, we're all over the country. We'd love to come to Nashville and interact one-on-one and, 
our reaction to that was like, oh, that's weird. You know, we're all artistic types. You know, I'm, I'm a writer. Andrew's a singer. You know, we got artists and painters and all these other people. None of them are event planners. <laughs> like, oh, right? yeah. It's like, no, we, we don't do conferencing. I don't know what that means. Right. right. Uh, but eventually we did say yes. We we're like, okay, let's just give this a shot and see what happens. So we sold a, a hundred tickets to what we called Hutchmoot. And which explain is that. A really strange word. The the word comes from hutch, which is where rabbits live, and moot, M O O T, which is a uh, an old word for a meeting of free people. Oh, the free people bit I didn't know. Yeah, a meeting of free people. So the hutch moot, the first hutch yeah. moot. How did it go? Did you get event planners together? And well, it was great. Um, tickets sold out in about a week or two, which huh. was which was surprising. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I did all the event planning, which I've never done before. (laughs) And we literally had no idea what was going to happen. I remember standing in the church, like, 10 minutes before the doors were supposed to open on that first touch moot. And we were still looking at each other being like, are people actually going to come? Like, we don't really even know. And if they do come, do they realize what a huge disappointment awaits them? Because we have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) And, uh, but it was great. Like people came in and immediately it was like, oh yeah, I recognize your name and you're delightful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the building was just full of great conversations for the next three days and everybody had great stuff to say. There was no regrets. We learned a lot, you know, but, um, there were no, no regrets, no doubt about the fact that the people who came, there is a primed, um, relationship and community. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like walking into a cold building where, where you knew nobody. Everybody knew somebody, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because they had seen a comment or they had read a post or a book or whatever. And so when they walked in the in the building, they knew they were going to know somebody, mm. which is not usually your experience with, sure. at, at a conference, I think. Sure. So that worked in our favor and continues to work in our favor. And of course, the other thing that I think makes Hutchmoot Hutchmoot is like we're really committed to the idea that it's about hospitality like I, I have a I have a meeting with with all the staff and volunteers before the doors open every year, and I tell them, like these people are not here to see us, like we are here to serve them. Mm. So like the people who are paying to come and have this experience this weekend, like I don't view it as like I'm a speaker who has arrived so that people can listen to what I have to <laughs> say. Like mm-hmm. if I'm speaking, it's because. I want to talk to some people and I hope that they are open to what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real, there's no green room. Mm. You know, we encourage all of our speakers and musicians, like, you know, you don't necessarily get to hide out, you know, (laughs) when, when your Mm -hmm. gig is over, we want you to go eat with these people. When you, we want you to stand at the table and have conversations with them. And hopefully at the end of the weekend, what's happened is that there have been a whole bunch of relationships built or, reinforced. Mm -hmm. And I think that's borne itself out over the last 10 years. Andrew often describes Hutchmoot as a feast, Mm -hmm. like metaphorically, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, Hey, we've prepared all of this stuff for you to come and partake of. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's food and it's drink and it's tea and it's pipes and it's uh, books and it's music and it's lectures. And just, you know, we just kind of set the table and let people take what they want. Mm -hmm. And man, it's fun. This year we're doing our first Hutchmoot ever in the UK. In Oxford, England. That's amazing. In so Oxford, England. So we will be right around the corner from the actual Eagle and Child, oh which is goodness. awesome. Oh my goodness. That is amazing. And then here in the U.S. in October, we'll have our 10th. Um, the 10th? Yeah, so it's a full decade this year, which oh. is exciting. Coming up next, we transition into talking about Pete's existence in all of these projects and spheres. 
how he handles the many different facets of his career, how failure has made him better, and how we too can learn to lead remarkable lives. If you're new to the Rogue Ones podcast, I'd like to welcome you and invite you to subscribe. Pete is the 16th Rogue featured on this podcast, and at its completion, there will be 22 folks featured in this podcast series. Their areas of interest range from music to writing to powerlifting and dog sled racing and a lot in between. We work to humanize these people who are living remarkable lives, so we may learn to do the same. Find all episodes, past and present, at RogueOnesPodcast.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Pete, starting with managing the many things he has his hands in. And man, it's fun. So now all of these years later, you have kind of become the person who is directing this said right. feast. Yeah. But what is that? What does that look like where you are creating things? You have to be in a creative space, writing, but then you also are having meetings and managing and all of that. What does that look like? And how do you give adequate focus to both things and give them both what they need. <laughs> I am still figuring it out. Uh, this year is a great example. I, uh, I was commissioned this year to write a stage ad- adaptation of Corey Tinboom's The Hiding Place. Oh, my word. And so uh, that premieres in September, and I started writing in January, and I had to turn in my first draft March 1st. So that's like a really tight window. And at the same time, I'm planning Hutchmoot UK, Hutchmoot US, uh, Rabbit Room Press, the Rabbit Room. We're doing a capital campaign to raise half a million dollars to build a new facility. All this stuff's going on at the same time. And it's really challenging. Like mm. my wife will tell you that she worries about me, mm. my, my blood pressure and my stress <laughs> level sometimes. But, you know, um, especially when it comes to playwriting, um, I have to draw a line and, you know, I say, hey, you know what? For these two months, Every day from eight to noon is my writing time. And until I'm finished with that, I don't look at anything else. And that's been enough, mm-hmm. you know, to get my play rating done. Uh, but other than that, it's just about, I think, me constantly having to learn better practices of time management, mm-hmm. which is not my forte. Mm. I'm very seat of the pants. Like I keep everything in my head and I manage, like I used to be an air traffic controller. Sure. Okay. That's what I did in the Marine Corps which taught me situational awareness and being able to juggle lots of important things at the same time and prioritize them. And so I've always been good at that, I think. Um, But the more complex my life has gotten, the more hard it's gotten. Mm -hmm. And so now I find myself, you know, having to commit more uh, regularly to my day planner and to my calendar and to relying on other people to do things, which I don't like to do, Mm. Um, but I'm learning to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I've got a great team that Mm -hmm. helps me out. Because, yeah, the team has grown to... Yeah, we uh, added three staff members in the last year. And uh, we're up to six staff members now, Mm. um, which is really exciting. And uh, I'm one of the kind of people... Like, I really believe that when I hire somebody, I'm... It's less about me hiring for a position and more about me hiring a person that I really want to work with. Yeah. Um, So I'm kind of... We're always on the lookout for these people who you think, you know, this person is the shape that we need sure. in the organization mm-hmm. uh, and trying to build that team of pe- the people who we think are going to make the rabbit room the best thing that it can be. Mm-hmm. And that's super exciting to me. And it's really exciting to me to find those people and be able to say, Hey, would you come do this? Yeah. We can actually give you a little bit of money if you're, right. if you're interested. They challenge me too. Like, well, we, we hired a couple of people this year and I told my wife, I was like, 
which my wife asked me, she said, oh, do you think that this person is going to make your job easier? <laughs> and I said, yes, but I think this person is also going to require me to have to work harder. Yes. Which, in a good way, you know? Yeah. Okay, identity, the topic of identity. Yeah. I don't know if that's important to you. I don't know if, but but I, I think it's important to all of us in a sense. But what has your journey been as you've kind of been um, – actively creative things and kind of in, in a, a writing standpoint, but then also a direct, do you struggle at all with what is it that I do or does it matter to you? Um, I don't know how much it matters to me. I mean, it does at some level. I know early on, you know, when I was first publishing my book, it was a big deal for me to, to for the first time, tell somebody I'm an author mm-hmm. as opposed to a writer. Mm. Those are different things, you know? Sure. And I feel like until there is a book for sale in a bookstore with your name on it. Mm. You don't get to call yourself an author, you know? So, and even then I felt like I was an imposter. I'm like, I don't really belong here. Like, what Mm -hmm. have I done? Uh, And then the same thing happened with being a playwright. Like, it's just, it's still a new, it's like a new pair of pants to me. It's just not quite worn in yet because it's only been like three, three, four years that I've been doing that. And I didn't really feel like I could even say that until I showed up to the first rehearsal and they had a card in front of my, chair that said A.S. Peterson playwright. And I was like, whoa, look at that. It's official, right? Which on the topic of pen names, I mean, I love like the C.S. Lewis thing. And was that a... (laughs) My name is Arthur Sherman Peterson. She's okay. a killer name. No. Well, yeah. Okay. Arthur's a great... Arthur Peterson is a great name. It's a great name. Uh, However, it is my father's name. Oh. So my dad was Art Peterson growing up. And so nobody was going to call me Art or Arthur. Uh, and so that meant that growing up, my name was Sherman. Uh, yeah. And like, you can imagine how that goes oh. over in middle school. Like, <laughs> it's just not, not ideal. Right. No. Oh, no. Uh, so, but you know, it was my name, whatever. Wasn't yeah. happy with it. But when know? I joined the Marine Corps, everybody in the Marine Corps goes by their last name and Peterson really quickly became Pete. Okay. So, uh, for six years, everybody called me Pete. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, that just stuck. Uh-huh. But then when it came time to publish a book, it was like, oh, what goes on this? Is it going to be yeah. Arthur Peterson, Sherman Peterson, Pete Peterson? And so I was just like, you know, I'm just going to take a cue from my literary heroes yeah. like T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and J.R. Right. Tolkien and just go with A.S. Peterson. Right. So do you ever feel like people pigeonhole you into certain things? Like, do you ever get the feeling that sometimes people are like, oh, he's this thing? And no, I don't have that problem because I think I feel like I've always been <laughs> so many things. Nobody ever knew what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even when I was, you know, in the Marine Corps. You know, people knew I was writing, knew I was making mm. films, you know, poetry, whatever. They they knew that I wasn't going to be an air traffic controller. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at the uh, working in the group home for kids, you know, I was doing arts and crafts. I was the arts and crafts director for a long time there. Um, arts and crafts, huh? Yeah, which means you know, I, I, I after a while, I stopped doing the kind of glorified babysitter thing, yeah. and I moved over to the arts and crafts program, which meant that um, I, pro- I ran the wood shop and the metal shop and. Uh, it came up, you know, every every cottage would have a night where they came to our shop and I would have different projects for the kids to engage them artistically. So we developed a lot of stuff like that. Oh, that's great. And I think people were like, oh, like Pete actually does stuff. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, you, you made a fiddle? How did you do that? Oh, you're making canoes now? How do you know how to do that? Wait, wait, wait. You've made a fiddle in canoes? You... Yeah. Well, I was writing the book, my first book, The Fiddler's yeah. Gun, uh-huh. while I was at the, at the uh, this job. And I realized pretty early on, because a fiddle is a huge part of the book, I felt weird writing about a fiddle player. 
mm-hmm. not being able to play myself sure. and not even really being familiar with a fiddle. So I thought, well, how better to solve that problem than to build my own fiddle? Great um, solution. <laughs> yeah, it's not the solution everybody would come up with. But <laughs> yeah, so I spent, you know, whatever time it took and built my own fiddle. And it was a great learning process. And it, I really think it contributed to my ability to talk about the instrument in, in the context of the book. You know, and then I got into canoe making and all these kind of other weird stuff. So I think for most of my life, people have kind of understood that I do many things. And uh, that's only become worse (laughs) over time. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's wonderful to be able to have your hands in so many things and to do them well. But it's frustrating personally because I feel like often I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff um, halfway rather than one thing all the way. Mm. So like the, the the playwriting, for example, like I love writing plays. I love the process of workshopping and putting on a play. Like I, I, I'm just completely falling in love with it. But um, it's really frustrating to me that I can't shut off the rest of life and just do right, that. And just focus on You that. know, because it's always going to be that plus me being an, an executive for the organization mm-hmm. uh, and plus whatever else is going on in life. And the same, you know, I've still got, you know, I know I've still got several novels uh, with a material in my head that I want to write. And I've just kind of had to come to terms with, with the fact that it's just not the time in my life when I'm supposed to be doing that. Mm. I've always believed that uh, the best way for me to steward my gifts is to look for the thing that the Lord is putting in front of me mm-hmm. and say yes to that. Mm-hmm. And so even if, even though I know I want to write this book, clearly right now what I'm supposed to say yes to is this play. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm going to put my energy. Mm-hmm. And outside of that, it's clearly right now the rabbit room. And I love all these things. There's not one of them I value over the other. So it's kind of, it's frustrating, but at the same time, it makes it easy to be able to say no when the thing that I'm getting to say yes to is something that I'm super excited it's about. It's a gift. Yeah. And it's a gift to have other things yeah. that... Yeah, and I feel really, really lucky too. Because hmm. I, like, I spent most of my life doing things that I didn't like. So it's satisfying right now to have a choice of multiple things that I love. Right. Are there any like unbelievable circumstances that have happened in your life that, um, it, Malcolm Gladwell has, um, outliers. I don't know if you've, I love followed. that book. Yeah. Me too. And that was one of the impetuses for this podcast actually was, uh, there are so many things that happened to us that we don't realize how they have affected until we look back and realize, off oh, we had, you know, Bill Gates being yeah. in the subdivision with the parents and the whatever that led yeah. to his eventual success. Are there any things like that for you that as you look back, it was an unforeseen thing that turned out to be? I think there are. It's, I feel like they're kind of hard to define. A good example, I think, is my Marine Corps experience. I, you know, I joined the Marine Corps for the stupidest of reasons, mm-hmm. you know, but the experience that I got out of that controlling aircraft, I think in a lot of ways trained my brain for what I do now. Mm. It's like that was, uh, you know, looking at all this complex information and figuring out how to keep it all separate and safe and to accomplish your entire goal with all these moving pieces. Mm. You know, that's air traffic control. Yeah. 20 years later in my life, and what am I doing? I'm not controlling aircraft, but I'm controlling all these various projects and people and things that have to get done. You know, I run a press and I run an organization and, you know, I, I run my own. Right, because Rabbit Room is, actually has a press division now. Yeah, and I'm the managing editor of Rabbit Room and Press. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. you know, I edit books and I also design books and I do typesetting and, um, yeah, I do a lot of different things. And it, like I said, it's it's managing a lot of balls in the air at the same time. And so is that just naturally part of my personality? 
Or is that something that my experience in the Marine Corps trained me for? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or did it unearth it? Had it always been there and yeah. then you just hadn't had to... Well, I can, I can say that prior to the Marine Corps, I had never done anything constructive in my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was a complete fool. Except all of your award-winning short stories. Yeah, that's true. I, I have to give a caveat to that, though, by saying that like, I, I did a lot of writing until I was maybe like 13 or 14, but I feel like after that... I was just the worst teenager for, for the next five years. <laughs> but it filled my life with stories. Like, yeah. No, my absolutely. wife will tell you that I mean, we've been married for eight years now, and she still is amazed that we'll be at a, a party or something, and I'll tell some crazy story that happened to me, and she's like, what do you mean? I haven't even heard that one yet. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of them in there. <laughs> do you still draw on those when you're working on things, oh, yeah. if you're writing? and Young people ask all the time, like, hey, I'm... 17 years old. I've written this novel. I want to be a writer. What should I do next? Mm-hmm. And my, my answer is like, you, you need to go live life. Yeah. Like you need to put your novel away. You need to go get in trouble um, <laughs> safely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like you need to go do some crazy stuff and like it, have the experience of living life and seeing what life is like with all its heartaches and problems and its depressions and its highs and all that kind of stuff. And then 10 years later, you'll be ready to write an amazing book. Oh, wow. Now, obviously, there is the, there are the outliers, sure, right? Who sure. are 21 and they write the next great American novel. But like we are not all that person. The more sure way to say to have anything to say, I think, is to have life under your belt first. Mm-hmm. And so I try to help myself sleep better <laughs> when I remember all the idiotic things I've done in my life by by realizing that I can redeem that in some aspect by putting it to work and enabling me to, to tell stories and to hopefully to understand other people better. Are there any big things that you feel like at the time were quote, failures, but actually enabled you to do greater things or to be, to get closer to what it is? Yeah. That you oh, sure. Doing? I mean, I'm sure I could come up with ideas all day long, but like the op- most obvious example, I think, is this Cinderella play. Mm. You know, it was a failure in respects that it was never produced and, you know, it's still sitting there and, you know, it was a failure in that it was obvious that it wasn't workable as it was, um, which was really disappointing to me because I poured blood, sweat and tears Mm -hmm. into it. Like I was passionately involved in that play. Uh, but like, of course it didn't work. It was the first time I'd ever tried to do that. But uh, that, that built in me, I think the, uh, the ability to learn from my mistakes and then when it came time to do it for real, I was able to, you know, get much more close to um, a great play. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that I wrote a great play. I just mean it was producible. <laughs> you know? It sold every ticket. It did. That's true. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm very thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Are there any insecurities you that you are daily? <laughs> I mean, we all have them, but some people are, yeah. they're a little bit closer in the head of, for some people than, than yeah. others. If my wife was here, she would have so much to say. <sighs> Um, our spouses have a, have a particularly, right? um, well, sharp it, look at our, you it's know, interesting because my wife see. does have, um, enormous battles with insecurity mm-hmm. in every aspect of her life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in comparison to her, I, I really don't. Um, and it's not that I think I'm right all the time or that I can do everything, but I do usually feel that given enough time and focus, I can accomplish what I need to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So the insecurities I have are typically about not having the time that I need, Oh, if that makes sense. Yeah, so my absolutely. anxiety dreams are all about showing up at Hutchmoot and realizing that I forgot to book the main speaker. <laughs> you know, it's yes. not that I couldn't do it. It's that I yes. forgot to do it because I didn't have enough time. You uh-huh. know, it's that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, 
so I think most of my insecurity is just worrying that I am not going to be able to manage the amount of things that I need to manage. It's almost like, um, and it's so funny, I think for all of us, our biggest vices are the things that make us um, who we are. You have so many That's things and it makes it makes you who you are. And yet it's the thing that scares you the most. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's probably... I had never thought about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I find that with myself as well. There are lots of things where I love I love that about myself, but mm-hmm. I also hate it about myself. And yeah. it's one of my biggest insecurities are those sorts of things. Yeah. Um. So the thing that I like to ask everybody before we wrap up with our conversation is for someone who is wanting to live a life of remarkable kind of storybook measures. And, and that doesn't mean celebrity, doesn't mean, but who, who want to look back on their life and say, that was pretty cool. And I did some really interesting things. What are some pieces of advice you can give to them? If there's something you want to do, always say yes. Mm-hmm. I know people argue with me when I say this sometimes, but I was actually in a conversation. It was like in an event or something. And and uh, I said this, and there was a musician. I, I was like, yeah, always say yes. Even if it doesn't pay money, always say yes. And the musician was like across the room, and, and uh, she was like, that is terrible advice. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I understand that. Like, but it's not about undervaluing what you're doing. To me, it's about uh, creating opportunities for you to show you what you can do. Mm. And I think if you do that, eventually people will begin to um, value what you do. Uh, and so I've tried to do that. If if somebody asks me to do something, if it's rem- remotely the kind of thing I want to do, I will say yes, unless I know I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. So my rogue friend, maybe you're a fellow writer who also has a nine to five. Be encouraged. There are people out there doing the same thing, who are producing quality lasting work that also split their time doing things in administrative roles. You're a special breed and you have a lot to be proud of. Thanks to Pete Peterson for joining us on the Rogue Ones podcast series, to Freezer Burn Recording for capturing the audio, and to Ryan at Sick Island Studios for making the episode sound wonderful as always. You can find us online at rogueonespodcast.com. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Thank you.